Well, good morning. I have to say, if you were here last week, thank you. You came back. You came back for more. Uh, we are in this two-part series, just a short series where we're exploring lostness, the ways that we are lost. Not physically lost, not a mentally lost, but how we are spiritually lost, even sometimes as followers, how we become lost. So we're, we're thankful that you're joining us, uh, whether you were here last week or maybe this is your first week. And if it is, if this is your first week here at Shepherd's Gate, either here in person or online, we are glad that you're joining us uh, and that we hope that this service is a blessing to you today. Like I said, we are, we're exploring this idea of lostness uh, and, and how we can all become lost. And we were talking through a parable. And if you wouldn't mind, you can go ahead and grab a Bible. Uh, whether you're here in person, you can find chair Bibles. That's going to be found on page 874. If you're online, you can follow along with the scripture as well, too. And let me just remind those that were here last week, and for those that weren't, let me just share a little bit uh, about where we are coming from. So here, here we find ourselves in Luke 15. Jesus is giving uh, actually three parables right in a row, triad of lost parables that are happening, and we're really examining the third. The first two are about the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and now we get to these, this lost son. And last week, I, you know, I started with a story to help kind of set the tone and help us kind of understand the concept we were going to be exploring, and I'm going to do the same this week too. Before jumping into those parables, you're ready, you have your Bibles, but just quickly, uh, this is a photo from uh, my last week. And no, that's not actually Spider-Man and Super Chase, but they're my two oldest boys, Zeke as Spider-Man, Judah as Super Chase. Yes, and, uh, and this was Wednesday night. Wednesday night was a good night. They put them on, they were able to play with them, and thank goodness they didn't tear any holes in them. There's no snags. I think they're still intact. And, and what an amazing wife that she already has these Halloween costumes set. This was Wednesday night. Tuesday night, the night before, you know what happened. Well, there was only one package at the door that day. You see, Super Chase costume came on Wednesday. On Tuesday, the Spider-Man costume arrived. Zeke got his Spider-Man costume. We opened it, and we let him go ahead and put it on, run around, shoot webs all over the house. He even sat down and watched an episode of Spider-Man and his incredible friends. But Judah didn't have his costume. How do you think our almost three-year-old felt? Can you guys say it with me? That's not fair. That is not fair. Mom said we're both getting costumes and he has his on and he gets to run around and play, but I don't, I'm just over here, like I just have to watch him have fun. Like where's my Super Chase costume? What, that's not part of the deal. How did the delivery driver not know? They're supposed to be delivered on the same day at the same time. And what kind of parents too are we that we let one dress up and not the other? I don't know. But this idea of not fair. It's instilled in all of us. It, there's something deep down in us that we, we have this idea of being able to judge what's right and what's wrong when things are fair, and we certainly know when things are not fair. That is the tone of the elder brother in the story we're going to be examining. He has the tone of this is not fair, and we're going to see it play out today in this parable. And before we actually jump into the parable itself, I actually want us to see here at the beginning of Luke 15, this is actually setting the stage for us in all these parables. Jesus is telling parables, these stories that are meant to teach those that are listening. But if we look at the beginning of Luke 15, we actually see who he is teaching. So if you would, Luke 15, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now tax collectors 
and sinners were gathered around to hear Jesus. But Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Tax collectors and sinners. There could be nothing worse than a tax collector. Tax collector would have been a Jewish citizen that lived in a certain region that was employed by the foreign Roman government, and then those tax collectors would likely extort money uh, from their own fellow Jewish uh, believers. They were the lowest of the low. And then this other blanket statement, sinners, saying that these other people, other than these tax collectors, were known sinners, caught up in some sort of public sin, some sort of public scandal, whatever it may have been, they were labeled, they were known by the society that they lived in as sinners. And then we have this other audience. So we have two audiences, known sinners, awful, horrible, younger brothers. These are awful, horrible people, and Jesus is eating with them. But then there's these good people, these Pharisees, these religious folks, teachers of the law, and they're upset. They're thinking, this isn't fair. Here's this, this new rabbi, Jesus, and he's doing all these teachings. He has this massive following, and they're thinking to themselves, this is not right. Why is he sitting down with these people? And what we have a hard time maybe seeing here is that there's something in this culture at this time called table fellowship. Now, you might grab a coffee or a lunch or have a meal uh, with people that are acquaintances or people you don't like. Maybe just think about Thanksgiving. Maybe there's people you know, maybe there's people you don't like. I don't know. But here in this society, if you're gathered around a table, that is to say that you have a common bond, that you are in some sort of accord with these people. And these Pharisees and tax collectors are looking at Jesus and like, what do you have in common with these? Do you know? Do you know just how sinful these people are? And so Jesus tells these three parables right in a row, building on the exact same structure, not necessarily to speak to the tax collectors and the sinners. His primary audience is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He is speaking directly to them in these parables. And to give you a quick reminder, the first is the hundred sheep, there's one that's lost. The shepherd goes and seeks out that lost sheep, brings it back on his shoulders, and he celebrates. Then there's the lost coin. The woman loses a coin. She goes and seeks out the lost coin. She finds it. She brings it back. She celebrates. And last week, we followed that exact same pattern. There was a son. He was lost. He told the dad, I want nothing to do with you. I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the inheritance now. Totally and completely lost. Goes off to a far country, spends all of it, squanders all of it. A famine hits the country once the guy's broke. He ends up in pig pens working for a Gentile pig farmer, the lowest of the low. Yet he comes back, this lost son, the father embraces him, gives him a robe, a ring, and sandals, and reinstates him as a son, and throws the biggest feast that that father has ever seen or that community has ever seen with a fattened calf. The lost thing was found, and there's a celebration. So if you follow the pattern of the first two parables, the lost thing was lost, it is found, there's a celebration. Well, where we ended last week, that's where the parable should end. But it doesn't end there, it goes on. Jesus has set up this pattern and now he deviates from it. The lost thing is found, there's a celebration, but there's still one more character, the elder brother. And that's where we pick up this week. Is Jesus is using this character to hold up this character in the faces of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law 
so that they might be able to see themselves. So skipping ahead to verse 25, halfway through this parable, the celebration's taking place. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And the elder brother here, I, this verse just says a lot without saying a lot. He's in the field. The older brother is doing what elder brothers do. He's working. He's working hard because if you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself. He's out in the field. He's applying himself. He is laboring, and he's coming near to the house, and he has no idea what's going on. This verse also tells us that this is some sort of celebration. There's music and dancing, and he hears it from a distance. And rather than just going right into the party, which would have been the right thing for him to do, if this is a party at his father's estate, then he has a role to play in this party. But rather than going into the party, he first wants to know what the party is all about. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? And the servant said, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. We don't see it quite yet, but those two things I highlighted here, those things would make an elder brother's blood boil. Your brother. The servant doesn't know what he's actually doing, but he's saying your brother. To the elder brother at this point, his younger brother. His younger brother who went to the father and essentially said to the father, I wish you were dead, give me my share, and then went off and squandered it. The elder brother looks at that younger brother now and goes, he's not my brother, he's dead to me. I want nothing to do with him. And we're going to see that later here in the text. And he also is telling the older brother that this is not just any party. This isn't just some little festivity that's taking place, but this is a massive celebration. It is the most important celebration because the fattened calf has been killed. There's not fattened calves that were out there. For this family, there was one calf, one cow that was set aside, that was fed the most choice food. And it had been set aside, and it was meant for the most important celebration that you could imagine. The most important celebration, arguably, of that father's life. As we talked about last week, a fattened calf is not just for the dad and the sons. It's not even dad for the dad and the sons and the servants. This is a community event. Meat would not be something that would be eaten every day or possibly even every week. So this fattened calf is a massive celebration for this family, a very, very valuable asset of the father that now he has sacrificed, and it shows just how important this party is. And now we begin to see in these following verses the heart of an elder brother. And in this, we're going to see what elder brother disease looks like. Elder brother, he, he, the older brother became angry. This is the very first response of most older brothers. An older brother, he became angry and refused to go in. He refused to go to do what he was supposed to do and help host this party. But the father went out and pleaded with him. The older brother is upset for some reason. Maybe you've heard it before. Anger is usually a secondary emotion. There's something that's behind that anger, and we're going to find out in these verses what this anger is all about. But first, we actually see the heart of the father again for the second time in this parable. The first time we see the heart of the father as he sees his son who's disgraced him and wasted one-third of his wealth, coming back, filthy having lived with pigs, and the father's heart at that time was to run to him 
to embrace him, to forgive him before a word of repentance was actually even given, and reinstate him as a son. And here again, we see the father realizing his elder son's not here in this feast. And rather than just going on with the celebration as it was, he's going after his lost son again. He goes out there and he pleads with him. He entreated him. He pled with him, which means he pled with him again and again and again. He's not just saying, son, get inside. He's making a case, son, you need to be in this celebration. You don't know what you're missing out. And the son, well, we actually begin to see his heart finally here in verse 29. He answered his father. As the father's pleading with him, just come and celebrate. Eat the fattened calf. The son says, look. Actually, a direct translation would be saying, look you. Not addressing him as father. Look you. All these years. All these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Not only do we see that he's angry, but now we start to see why he's angry. We see actually how he views himself. He views himself as a slave of the father, which I find so interesting because if you look earlier in the parable, when the younger son was coming home, the younger son was going to make the case. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no worthy longer, worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But here the older brother is saying, I've always been one of your servants. I have been slaving for you. He could have used a different term. He could have said, I've been working for you. No, no, no. I have been slaving for you. I've been doing what you've been telling me to do, even though I don't want to do it. I'm trapped here in this relationship. And then he is so boastful, so prideful, so self-righteous to say to his father that I've never disobeyed you. Parents in the room. If a kid came forward to you and said, you know what, I don't want dinner tonight. I want ice cream because I've worked so hard. I put my clothes away. I do all the things you tell me to do, and I've never disobeyed you. I think you would have to hold from laughing in the face of your child because you know, you know that that doesn't, that's not true. That's not true that they have never disobeyed you. Yet he's so full of himself that he's doing everything just right. I mean, he's coming in from the field. Everybody else is partying. And he's the only one that's out there. Even the servant knows what's going on. He doesn't because he's the one that's putting in the time and the hours because the job needs to get done. He's never disobeyed him. And then we see why he's been doing all this, why he has been slaving, why he has never disobeyed his father. Going on in verse 29, it says this, Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now we see why he's working so hard. I want a goat. I want a young goat. I want some sort of celebration. I don't want a celebration for the community. I don't want a celebration to sit down with you and the younger brother. I want to celebrate with my friends. That's what I've been working for. I want the things of the Father. I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want to sit across the table from you, Dad. I want a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. We begin to see these parallels that we might not normally have seen between the younger brother's heart and the elder brother's heart. The younger brother went about getting the things of the Father by being very bad. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your stuff. I'm going to go spend it. Just right in his face. I want your stuff. I don't want you. The older brother wants a young goat. He wants the things of his father, but he's going about getting the things of his father in a different way. 
He's trying to get the stuff of the Father by being very good. Doing all the right things, slaving for his dad, following all the rules, working harder than anybody because that way he's going to deserve the things that he's going to get. And then we see this comparison. It's not just that he knows that he's working hard, it's that he's working harder, that he is better than his younger brother. But this son of yours, if one of your children does something that's a little bit wrong, sideways, a bad report, a bad grade, bad report from something that's happened at recess, what happens with us parents is the first parent to find out will look to the spouse and say, do you know what your son did? (laughs) Now we, I hope, and I know if I use that term, we use it in jest. But here the elder son is using this term in earnest. He means this. He, He could say, but my brother. No, no, no. He's saying your son because he's distancing himself from his younger brother. But your son who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home and he kills the fattened calf for him. Do you know, Dad? Do you know just how bad he is? Do you know what he did? Do you know, like, you're doing this celebration right now, but now you're doing this biggest celebration of your whole life and possibly of this whole community and you're celebrating. Do you know who you're celebrating? Do you know just how bad they are and how good I am? Do you not see the contrast? He's trying to explain to his dad and make this comparison because he's certainly making the comparison. He had likely been making this comparison in his head and in his heart for years up to this point. But now here it just just comes to this point where, man, this younger brother is so sinful and now we can see this clear contrast, dad, just how sinful he is and just how good I am. Don't you see it? And you make this sacrifice because that word in Greek, kill, is the same word as sacrifice. This sacrifice has been made. A sacrifice that is, has nothing to do with the worthiness of this son, but it actually has everything to do with the love of the father. But the elder brother doesn't get it. He thinks it's about his worth, about the worth of the younger son, not about the love of the father. So if you were with us last week, it was right around this point that the younger son was at the pig pen. And I asked all of you, Do you see yourself? And so I ask you again with the elder brother, do you see yourself? How do I know if I'm an elder brother? And I know what some of you are thinking. No, (laughs) not me. I'm not an elder brother. I don't have elder brother disease. I don't have this kind of heart of an elder brother. Well, let's take a moment and just kind of explore this, this heart of an elder brother and what that actually looks like in some of our lives. It might not be that a younger brother has offended your parents and you've not restored them back into your family. But what about someone in your family or at work who's offended you or sinned against you in some way? And maybe, just maybe, you've forgiven them, you've given them the lip service of, I forgive you, but in your heart, you are still waiting every moment, every day for them to prove themselves and show you just how sorry they are for the sin that they committed against you. And if they trip up or when they trip up and sin against you again, then you're going to be able to hold that over their head because you haven't actually offered true, free forgiveness to them, but it's, all, it's based off a contingency with a bunch of strings attached that you really haven't forgiven them. And I can say that because I've done that very thing in my own life. 
withholding forgiveness from those that I love because there's a sense of superiority or self-righteousness and self-pride because I have tried so much harder and I haven't made that same mistake that that person has made and I'm not going to forgive them. What about just at work? We see here this older brother is a hard worker and I think we'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that's watching online or sitting here today that wouldn't consider themselves a hard worker. Yet, not every one of us would consider each other a hard worker. If you're putting the hours, wherever it be, at school or at home or at the place of work, and you're looking around going, no one works as hard as me, and they don't get it. Why aren't they putting in the time? I am the hardest person, hardest working person here, and they, they might get a raise, they might get a bonus, and that would make you burn with rage. The idea that someone that isn't working as hard as you or getting some sort of reward that you know that you're the rightful heir to. You really deserve that because you've been putting in the time. It can happen at home too. If the, there's who else does the dishes? Who else mows the lawn? Who knows how to edge the sidewalk just right? No one can do it but me. I am the only one and th th there's no one else. And in that, it might be subtle, but there's this sense of getting puffed up with self-righteousness and pride that I'm the only one who gets it. I'm the only one. And in doing so, when we're crossed, we get angry, and we're angry because we think we deserve more, and by comparison. Or for students out there, if you've ever worked on a group project, you know within about five minutes about sitting down with your other classmates, who's going to get the work done, and who's going to coast, right? Yet the grade is applied to everyone the same, and it gets upsetting when you're working for an A, and you have other folks that might be working with you, and they just want to get a C, because Cs get degrees, and they don't really care. And they're knowing that you're going to be the workhorse and you're going to carry them. You see, inside all of us, there is a heart of an elder brother. It has been this way since the very beginning. We looked last week and we saw how this heart of working against God and wanting the things of God but not a relationship with him, that happened in the garden when they reached for the fruit so they could have knowledge like God. Well, shortly thereafter, there was Cain and there was Abel, and Abel made a worthy sacrifice, but Cain didn't, and Cain got so upset with his elder brother heart that he killed his younger brother. It has been there since the very beginning, and it resides in us. This sin nature where we want to self-justify ourselves. We want to be self-righteous, and you know you're an elder brother when you're looking to self when you're spending more time thinking about yourself than you're thinking about others. And it can be as simple and as subtle, too, as people watching. You people watch at the mall, the airport, at a fair. I know people love to people watch. But what I believe to be behind that sometimes, in some cases, is that as we people watch, we can see other people that we don't think we know better than that person. You probably would never say that out loud. I hope you wouldn't say that out loud. But there's something inside of us. They'd be like, well, yeah, I have this all figured out. I'm better than them. But what we don't realize sometimes, if you see someone in public or if you see someone on the side of the street and you can see your comparison that you're so much better off and if they just did the things I did, if they worked as hard as I did, then they would have the same life that I have. Yet we don't realize that if we pause for a moment and looked at all the things that have led each of us to the place where we are, Many of those things are not based off of your merit, but rather off the kindness of God. The family you were born into, the parents that you had, the time that you were born into, the, 
intelligence that you have, the drive that you have, those are not things that are of merit towards you, but they are a kindness of God that he would give you those very things. And if you were to put yourself in that other person's shoes in the exact same circumstance and situation, maybe it'd be a little bit different, but maybe it'd be just the same. And so to cast judgment on them and to think I'm better than you is like to totally negate the fact that actually you have a massive head start in life with all the kindnesses that God has poured out on you abundantly and you take them for granted and think it's all on me and I've figured it all out and I am a hard worker. Now hear the father. The father could reprimand his son. He could discipline his son. He could tell him. He could grab him by the ear and drag him into the party and go, go in here, say you're sorry to your brother, and mean it. But rather, we actually see the heart of the father again. The heart of the father who ran to the younger son is the same heart of the father who walks out to the older brother. It, it starts this way in his address to his son. He says, my son. The father sees all the wickedness in his elder son's heart in this moment. He doesn't refute it. He doesn't correct it. He doesn't bend him over his knee. Rather, he refers to him as son. The father's not willing to distance himself from the older brother. He's reminding him, no, you're not my slave like you just said you were. You haven't been slaving for you. You are my son. Let me remind you of that, the father said. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. There is a reason to celebrate. Don't you see it? He wasn't, he wasn't just far off, but he was dead. He was dead in his trespasses. He's back. He's alive. He's been restored to us. This isn't about his worthiness. This is about the fact that he's alive again. He's in our lives again, and we have to celebrate. The father doesn't distance himself. He's trying to draw him close. He's trying to give him this opportunity. Son, don't you see? Can't I help you see the thing that I see, that this is worthy and right to celebrate? More so than a sheep or a coin, this son of mine, as Jesus is telling these parables, here's the most valuable thing, this son. He's back, and it is right to celebrate. It's at this point in the parable that we have to ask, what did the elder brother do next? Well, if you have your Bibles open, you can see it doesn't tell us. In the parable itself, there is no resolution to the decision the elder brother needs to make. The elder brother is still outside of the party. And outside of a party is not a great place to be in a parable. Elsewhere in Jesus' parables, a party, a celebration, a feast, eating together, is representative of being within God's grace and his mercy. It also points us to the feast at the end of time, a new heaven and new earth, being with God, enjoying God, being in relationship with God, but to be outside. To be outside of a party in Scripture means you're far from God. That's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outside of a party is not where you want to be. You need to be in the party. And so the elder brother, he's given these choices. The father entreats him. He pleads with him. He says, you need to come in and hear his why. He listens to his whole list of complaints his list of self-righteousness, the list that all of us have of why we're good but other people aren't. He listens to all of it, but he still makes the invitation, I see you as you are, son, but I want you in this party still. 
So here on the parable level, because there's multiple levels taking place here, on the parable level, we don't have the answer. What did the elder brother do next? But as I showed you at the very beginning, in verses 1 and 2, it's not just about the parable. It's about who the parable is pointing to. And the parable is pointing to actual people, not just characters, Pharisees and teachers of the law. And Jesus is holding up this mirror or holding up this character of an elder brother right in their faces and saying, do you see yourself? Because here Jesus is. He's actually sitting there having meals with sinners, with younger brothers. And these elder brothers are right over him muttering to themselves, look at Jesus. How could this teacher sit with these sinners? And Jesus is giving them the opportunity in that moment to be able to sit at that same table. They have the same access to Jesus, the same access to grace and mercy if they would just be willing to see themselves as they really are and repent of it and just go, I, you know what, all my good works aren't worth it because they're rubbish, they mean nothing. I just want to sit at the table with Jesus because he's the worthy one, not me. Yet if they cling to those things, that's the second choice, you're still going to be outside the feast. And so while we don't know what happened to the character of the elder brother, we do know what happens to the characters of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because moving forward in Luke, that idea, that idea that their narrative, the narrative of work hard, get what you deserve, work hard, get what you deserve, and Jesus comes on the scene and says, you don't have to necessarily work hard because I'm taking it all on me because I love you. That narrative and their narrative don't mesh. And it makes the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law irate. And they could not stand it. All the way to the point where in Luke 22, we pick up and we see what elder brothers do when they stay in elder brotherness. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. The criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and people stood by. People, just people, sinners and tax collectors and the women that were following Jesus and John, they stood by, but here's this other audience. The rulers, the rulers which are Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they got what they wanted. They crucified him, and while they were crucifying him, they scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Because ultimately, with the heart of an elder brother, what we will do is we will elevate ourselves to the place of God. And since there's only room for one God, the other one has to die off. There's no room for Jesus and his sacrifice because we're too busy adding to it, thinking that we have earned it all, that we deserve it all. And it's not about grace and mercy, but it's about merit, and it's about my merit. Because it's not fair it's not fair for all these other people to get forgiveness. It's not all fair for all these other people to get grace. It's not fair that all these other life circumstances where people pray and they get their prayers answered, but I don't get my prayers answered. I go to church every week. I don't get my prayers answered. Or these people get blessed in this way, and rather than my first inclination to be able to celebrate with them, that would be proper, that's a proper thing to do that we see here in this parable, but rather than celebrate with them, we mutter to ourselves, they don't really deserve that blessing. Or why can't I? Woe is me. Why don't I get a blessing like that? It's the heart of an elder brother. And every time we do that, that's another sin. It's a subtle sin. It's a silent but deadly sin that resides in us because we have this elder brother heart that needs to be killed, that we need to repent of. 
But the good news is that Christ died for all those things. He died for all those ways that we tried to be very bad. And we knew we were being very bad because we wanted a good life. And we were younger sons. But he also died for all the ways that we do this thing where we're elder brothers. And these subtle ways that our hearts still cling to the fact that we think we're worthy, that we have some sort of merit, and in doing so, we're actually crucifying Christ. As I was preparing this message, I had to look up at my desk, and this photo actually sits above uh, a spot in my office. It's called Forgiven. And if you can't see it quite there, there is a, a mallet and a nail in the hands of a man wearing modern clothes to make it somewhat relatable to where we're at today. This is what elder brothers do. Elder brothers and younger brothers, it calls for a sacrifice. And you know what? It's not fair. It's not fair that the God of the universe would have to step down from his throne and take on sinful flesh, to, be, to become a man without sin and to die for all of us. That's not fair. Yet he's willing to do that for us and he's willing to do that for you. Even as you have a younger brother heart or an elder brother heart, that we can see ourselves for what we truly are here. We are the ones that cause Jesus to have to die for us, but he does so willingly and lovingly, not because of our merit, not because of our worth, not because we're hard workers and we have it all figured out, but he does it because of his father heart, his heart that comes out to each of his children and he goes, I see you just as you are. Dirty and filthy, either from being in a pig pen or filthy and dirty because of the prideful heart that you have and I love you still, and I invite you into my feast. And that is each of us, that he embraces us still in this state. And so then as believers, we have to come to this place where we ask ourselves, what do we do now? Then if that's really me, which it is really you, and it's also really me, if that's really us, if we really have an elder brother heart, what is it that we're supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to go to the Father. We're supposed to see ourselves for what we really are and repent of it. See ourselves for having an elder brother heart that time and time again self-justifies, becomes prideful, gets angry, compares ourselves left and right to people, thinking that we're worthy of something and repent of it, turn from it, come back to God and receive his free gift of grace and mercy towards you. And then after that, from that place of first being loved, then you are to love others in that same way. No longer withholding forgiveness and kindness and mercy to those in your life, but giving it freely because you've received it freely. And so the invitation stands for you just as it stood for the Pharisees. You have choices that are set before you. We can still live out that elder brother heart of thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Or we can see ourselves for how we truly are. Return to God. Come back to him. Enjoy the feast and celebrate with the fact that Younger brothers and elder brothers alike are invited to celebrate with a God who is willing to sacrifice himself for us. And from that place, we go out and live lives towards our coworkers and our family members and all those that we come to contact with in this society, freely giving them the love that the Father has given us. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your teaching that comes to us through this parable. God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would call to mind for us all the ways that we fall short, all the ways that we might act like a younger brother, and God, also all the ways that we subtly act like an elder brother. 
where we become self-righteous, where we become prideful. God, when we think of ourselves better than others, God, help us turn our eyes from ourselves and how good we are. But let us look to you and your holiness and your righteousness for our confidence and for the love that we so freely receive from you. God, let us be loved. Let us know how, how good that love is so that we might be able to share that grace and mercy that you give to us with those in our life that are in desperate need of it as well. That we might be your light in a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.